0: Today we turn our attention back to James. So open your Bibles with me to the book of James. And we're going to be picking up in chapter 3. I'm going to read for our hearing in the context verses 1 through 12. And then we'll begin to look at this text. It will take us a couple of Sundays to go through it. I want to talk about this morning the topic of taming the terrible tongue. James chapter 3 verse 1. Through 12. The Word of God says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his old body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at the ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds. They are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest the little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. It sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same spring? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives and a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. This part of James stands out in the book like a flame in darkness. It paints a picture of the destructive nature of sin. And just how terrible it can be. It uses very descriptive language that many of us are familiar with. And one of the phrases that is often repeated regarding the tongue is the phrase, It is set on fire by hell itself. It almost sounds a little extreme, doesn't it? Unless you've been on the receiving end of one of those lashings by the tongue. It is like one pastor said, it's the concealed weapon that all of us have. And we can use it at our discretion at any time. All we have to do is open the two gates, one of flesh and one of ivory, and let it go. It is so true, isn't it? I'm sure you remember the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's not true. That's just not true. Words can hurt, and words can hurt for a lifetime. Words are like toothpaste, as one said. Once they're squeezed out, they're impossible to get back in. According to one article I read this week, and it's kind of interesting, this kind of came across my um, computer as I read through some articles. It said that the leading cause of death among young people regarding suicide is from bullying, where young people have been assaulted by words, in fact, they say that now there's a new kind of bullying that's cyberbullying, where people do this through the internet and social media. Ages 10 to 14 of girls are at higher risk of this kind of suicide regarding bullying. They say that there are 4,400 deaths per year of suicide of young people, and regarding that, there are at least 100 attempts for every one. That's amazing a lot of it has to do with the words that we share with one another it's a tragic reality but our words have great potential and great power not only to harm but also to do so good someone once said one criticism will instantly overrule a thousand praises one article said this and one author words can wound and steal life gossip and slander bring a cheap thrill to some while exploiting and objectifying others false testimony uses words to misrepresent caricature and malign the reputation of fellow humans while for selfish gain while others use condemnation accusation and cutting sarcasm which creates pain as they shame belittle and discourage of course, joking uses humor to, destruct, to draw attention to oneself while sending rotten, fe- rotten fruit up into the atmosphere. Words have tremendous power. They can encourage, they can strengthen, they can edify, they can enable. Words can be used to destroy, to discourage and to disable. They can bleed the very life out of a human soul. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18 says, There is one who speaks like the piercings of the sword. Proverbs 25, 18 says, A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a club, a sword, and a sharp arrow. Psalm 52, 2 says, Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, working deceitfully. In the list given to us in Proverbs chapter 6 of the seven things that God hates and calls an abomination, Three of them are related to the tongue. He says, these six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. A lying tongue, a false witness who speaks lies, and the one who sows discord among the brethren. Right among those horrible, horrible sins of the tongue is the hands that shed innocent blood. Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Rabbis spoke often of the tongue as an arrow rather than a sword because they said that you could kill from the distance. You didn't have to be near. Luke 6.45, Jesus said this, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know what a man is like in his heart? Listen to him. Talk. Matthew 12, 35, Jesus said this along the same context. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. The tongue has great propensity to do very evil because it finds its resource in the depravity of man. It is literally fueled by sin, and all it needs to burn is to be lit. The first sin that was ever committed after the fall in the Garden of Eden was the sin of the tongue. Because Adam accused God with his words of his own guilt. Saying that the woman that you gave me is the reason why I sinned. And then also we note that Paul the Apostle says some very stern words regarding the tongue in Romans chapter 3. He says, their throat is an open grave an open tomb their tongues they practice deceit and the poison of snakes is under their lips and their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness Isaiah you remember in Isaiah 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and all the glory and Isaiah was filled with amazement but mostly he was filled with his own recognition of his own sin in that context he says woe is me I am ruined because I, the prophet of Israel, Isaiah, am a man of unclean lips. And I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. One author said this in scripture, the tongue is variously described as wicked, deceitful, perverse, filthy, corrupt, flattering, slanderous, gossiping, blasphemous, foolish, boasting, complaining, cursing, contentious, sensual and vile. And someone, he says, uh, has observed that because the tongue is in a very wet place, it has a tendency to slip. But lest I give an unbalanced view of the tongue, I need to remind you that the tongue also can be a great means of encouragement and healing. As much as the tongue can destroy, the tongue can talk a man down off the cliff. The tongue can soothe wounds that life inflicts it can heal years of conflict. It can ask for forgiveness and restore a broken soul. It can say, I love you, and it can also be there whenever you need someone. It can build up, it can tear down, but it also can encourage the depressed. It can warn of danger. It can also restore a relationship. It can confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and be saved. It also can share the most marvelous message that all of us have, which is the gospel. It can share the good news with the right heart. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18 says, The tongue of the wise promotes health. Proverbs 16, 24 says, Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health to the bones. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 20 says, The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, the lips of the righteous feed many. One author said words of praise have healing power. Communities and families thrive whenever the members notice the good in each other and verbalize it. He went on to say mutual celebration is a hallmark of the life together and the spirit-filled daughters and sons of God. Words of encouragement will put courage to those who are weak and afraid and torn down. A timely rebuke will protect someone from being self-destructive. A gentle word will turn away wrath and halts the cycle of evil. Grace-filled words engage skeptical minds and doubting hearts. Someone calculated that a man speaks 25,000 words a day and a woman speaks 30,000 words a day. I'm not sure who counted. But they do say that men usually expound their 25,000 words at work before they get home and the woman usually starts her 30,000 whenever he arrives. (laughs) I can testify. The last two sermons that we looked at together really told us about the reality of what true saving faith is and what non-saving faith is. We've learned that there is a faith that doesn't save. We've also learned that there's a belief in God and a belief in Jesus Christ that doesn't save. That you actually can confess Jesus as your Savior and miss heaven altogether. In fact, it is sobering and alarming and fearful to know that there are many who are involved in church and church life and ministry and will be shocked to hear the words whenever they stand before the Lord, Lord, I've done these things in your name. And Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you. It is representative of what we see today in the churches, isn't it? In evangelical community, there are thousands who have made professions of faith, but have no fruit and no works to verify their faith. They're in literally, in many ways, indistinguishable from the lost. We learned that we are saved apart from works, but we're not saved without works. In other words, true saving faith is the kind of faith that produces fruit. It produces works. It produces a desire to live obedient to the Lord. It produces a desire to follow him. In the continuing theme that James brings to us in James chapter 3, he is showing us that one of the fruits of true saving faith is how a man handles his tongue. How a man handles his tongue. In verse 10 particularly, if you look there in James 3... It says, out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bring olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. In other words, it's inconsistent with the confession of faith to say that you are one who has your mouth full of cursing and lies, and at the same time to say you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It is inconsistent with regeneration. Scientists maintain that every sound wave that is put forth from the human mouth continues forever, and if we had the instruments available to us, we could capture those sound waves and reproduce the very words that were spoken. Well, I'm not sure if that's true, but I do know this. There is one who knows every single word we've ever said, and can recapture every one of those words, and it is God himself. He knows our words, and do you know that the Bible tells us that what you say will be an evident indicator of whether or not you are truly converted? That's an amazing statement. That what rolls off our tongues is an indicator of the validity of our faith, of whether we are real or not. Matthew 12:36 Jesus said this, I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Wow. When you hear that, you probably start thinking back at what you've been saying, right? now what he is saying is not that we are perfect in our words listen we all know that in fact we'll read in just a few moments in james that james says the only one who could ever control his tongue perfectly would be who a perfect man and there's not a person in this room that is a perfect man at all or a perfect woman but the bible says there should be a direction in our life that verifies our faith and it verifies our faith by the words we speak It's truly astonishing to say that Jesus could say that a valid indicator of conversion would be the very words you speak. In other words, in salvation, there should be a noticeable difference between the converted and the non-converted based on what you say. Now, before we go any further, I want to say this because I think sometimes, especially in the evangelical community, we have a tendency to think, well, I don't curse and I don't say bad words therefore i'm a christian that's not the only thing we're talking about here there's a lot in scripture that addresses the issue of the tongue that can verify your faith or discredit your faith and i think it's important for us to realize that just because you say well i don't curse and i don't say bad words therefore i'm okay with god well do you lie do you gossip do you slander do you misrepresent the truth do you express anger in an ongoing pattern in your life i know there's probably verses upon verses that you and i are thinking of that the bible reflects on this topic and you're wondering why i haven't shared them yet well just give me a couple of sundays we'll talk about them we'll talk about them and i also want to add this that whenever i talk about the tongue i am the first one to admit that i'm guilty I am guilty. Listen, I have to speak all the time, and I have to talk all the time, so I know how important it is to relegate the tongue to holiness, really. I think it's important for us to realize that James is literally insisting on here the reality that if you're a truly converted person, it will flesh itself out in a manifestation of your tongue. Not in perfection, but at least in direction. There should be a noticeable difference between what you and I say and how we speak and how we talk as believers as opposed to the world in the unregenerate as one author said the tongue is an organ of speech and man's use of the tongue provides a ready revelation of his inner nature in other words if you want to know what a man is really like or you want to know what a woman is really like listen to what they say James 1 26 reminded us early on in chapter 1 anyone who thinks his religious he is religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, you remember that? His religion is vain. The tongue is you in a unique way. It may be small. It may be hidden. But it really does represent us, doesn't it? It is a tattletale on our character. It really betrays us too often, doesn't it? What's really deep in our heart. So it is utmost important that we learn what the Bible says about the tongue. And so we're going to do that as we work our way through James. He doesn't have a whole lot of positive things to say about the tongue in chapter 3. But we'll highlight some others in scripture. But the point is, is that we know what James is trying to point out here. Is that the tongue is a terrible, terrible means of sin the tongue can destroy and apparently there there may have been a problem that james was addressing in the churches that he was writing this letter to as he would with any group of people if you have any group of people whether it's a family or a church or organization there's always problems with the tongue most of my problems that i've ever had in church have always gone back to the tongue and of course most of my problems i've had with myself have always gone back to my tongue If I could just keep my mouth shut. Right? How many times I've regretted. Well, to begin with, let's look at the pressing prudence regarding the tongue. And that's in verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now this verse here. It's one of those verses that often I remind myself of because every time I stand in the pulpit or behind a podium or any place and teach the word of God, I find myself putting myself under stricter judgment. In other words, because of what I say, I put myself under stricter, more careful scrutiny of the Lord himself. And every teacher is that way. Every teacher who teaches the word of God, and we're not talking just generally, we're not talking about those who teach math or English or anything else. We're not talking about that, although you will be accountable for every idle word you speak, yes. But more particularly here, what James has in mind is the didaskalos, the which is the Greek word for the teacher in the New Testament. In fact, in verse 1 where he says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. The word order is not exactly that way in the Greek text. I did find that in the um, Legacy Standard Bible, it gave almost a word-for-word literal translation of it. It says in James 3, 1 in the Legacy Standard, do not many of you become teachers. In other words, the teachers is third in the sentence. My brothers is later. The emphasis of the text is on not becoming teachers. Not becoming teachers james's emphasis here is that the brethren understand that that they're going to go into more severe judgment for the teaching they hit they give and so the command and by the way it is a command here don't so eagerly pursue being a teacher uh, don't don't just jump on the bandwagon if you will to become a teacher teachers primary tools are their tongues and what they say and a biblical teacher has tremendous weight and responsibility. You're not handling the words of men. You're handling the words of the living God and how you interpret them and how you communicate them and how you instruct has great weight, great, great gravitas. And it's so, so important for us to understand that because you can lead into truth. You can lead into life and you also can lead into error and you can lead into false doctrine by what you say and what you teach. And it's so important, as James tells us here, that we need to make sure that we don't so eagerly run after the office or position of teacher. This word didoskalos is used many, many times in the New Testament, referring to the official office of teacher, but also it's used in reference to just teaching in general. In fact, we have the word used in the Great Commission where it's telling us that we are to be teachers. In fact, it says in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen: go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. So that places all of us in the category of teachers, at least at one level, right? All of us have a responsibility to share the word, to communicate the gospel clearly so that people can know who Jesus is and know the good news, But there is levels of accountability when it comes to teachers, no doubt. The rabbis and the Jews specifically believe that the teaching position was one of the highest honors in Israel. In fact, they would rank the teachers, the rabbis, above the parents of people. And one of the statements the rabbis would make is that if you or your parents were taken into captivity and the rabbi was taken into captivity then you make sure you let the rabbi go first. So there was a great understanding of the honor that came with that. Even though rabbis were not known to receive money for their teaching positions in Israel, it was considered a very pious act to take in a rabbi and to take care of their needs and, and to support them in every way possible. The word translated become here is a present tense in the text, meaning that there's an ongoing desire for becoming teachers and what james is warning is not the fact that we don't need teachers or you shouldn't be a teacher but he's warning against what you say and the accountability of it i don't want to discourage anybody who's gifted that way to to become a teacher and i don't want to discourage anyone from sharing the word of god with your neighbor or your friend or discipling one another but i am telling you that all of us are accountable for the words we say and the tongues that we use in representing and teaching the word of god and that's what james's point is i mean the teaching position is is highly exalted in the bible no doubt in acts chapter 13 verse 1 it says now in the church at antioch there were certain prophets and teachers right at the very beginning the prominent ones that are known and spoken of are the prophets and the teachers as we get to ephesians 4 11 and following it says that God himself Christ himself gave to the church apostles some prophets some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the building up of the saints the apostles prophets evangelists and pastors and teachers all have one thing in common they all spoke forth doctrine they taught they preached they proclaimed And this is the idea that is given in the New Testament. Christianity gave prominence to teaching. And it should be that way and should be understood that way. In fact, elders, in their qualifications in chapter 3, verse 6, it tells us they should not be a novice. That means a new convert. And the reason why is because in the position of elder, you usually end up in some position of teaching somewhere in the church, and it's easy to get puffed up and prideful and arrogant about your teaching and you can fall into the same condemnation of the devil as it says in first timothy 3 6 so teachers in the church today need to be grounded in the word of god well equipped and well trained so that they know and understand what they're teaching and the responsibility that they have great moral damage can occur in a local church by error that is taught by the leadership and it has to be taken seriously doesn't it As one author said, that is why it is so foolish and spiritually dangerous to have newly converted celebrities or any other new convert as well as an untrained person as a preacher or a teacher in a local assembly. And we have a problem with that in evangelicalism today. Somebody who's a celebrity gets saved and all of a sudden they're on the speaking circuit and they're going around and usually they get drifted into some kind of error or doctrinal heresy And then they begin to promote it, and because of their celebrity status, they gain a following that way. And it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Especially when we move away from the local New Testament church. Now, I'll be the first one to tell you that I think seminaries are important, that I think even extra-biblical education is important, that there's many parachurch organizations that have been really helpful to the church. But what has happened is, so sadly over the years, is the church has relegated its responsibility to train up men as teachers in the church to other things or other people or other institutions. When we're the ones who are responsible to do that here at this church. And that's, by the way, just to give a little footnote to that, that's one of the reasons why the Master Seminary that John MacArthur has started many years ago now actually started out of the New Testament church. And if you go to that church today, the master seminary is on the same property. It's right there with them. So whenever you're involved in that seminary, you're there at the church. You're involved in the church. Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, two men in our church are taking classes right now from that seminary. And one of the requirements of that seminary is you have to be involved in the local church. You have to meet with the leadership of the local church. You can't just go away, get educated, and then get dumped back into a church somewhere. And that's what we see so often today. And, you know, I read chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. The translation of the word knowing is a perfect tense verb that assumes that they had already known this. This is not new information to them. They knew this. And they have known this for some time. They already perhaps had been warned by James that they were to be careful about becoming teachers because they would run into stricter accountability and stricter judgment. One of the most sobering things I read about historically in the church is how some of the the reformers and the Puritans handled the word of God in the pulpit and even some more recent men of God who have stood in the pulpit. One that comes to my mind is the great Scottish reformer John Knox. When John Knox was a Given the opportunity for the first time to stand into the pulpit and to preach the word of God, he didn't get a chance to at the very beginning because he began to wept uncontrollably. He wept and wept and wept. He had to step down from the edifice and get control of himself before he was going to speak the word of God because he was so overwhelmed with the responsibility of preaching the word of God. It's not a minor thing. It's not something to be taken lightly. One pastor reportedly said of preaching, uh, what could be said of teaching, and that is this, there is no special honor in preaching. There is only special pain, only special pain. The pulpit calls those anointed to it as the sea calls sailors. And like the sea, it batters and bruises and does not rest. To preach, to really preach and teach, is to die naked a little at a time And to know each time that you do it, you must do it again. And that's so true. So true. There are times, in fact, that I've taught in the pulpit and found out later on that my view or what I said was incorrect, only to stand up in the pulpit the next Sunday and correct my position. Because I'm more concerned about that than I am to make sure that you guys just think I know it all. Because I don't know it all, and I'll grant you that. That's my wife. I don't know it all. I study each week to prepare myself to come in here and share with you the Word of God. I read each week so that I can be prepared to accurately handle the Word of God. And every teacher should because one day I will stand before Jesus Christ and He's going to grade me in a very strict way on how I handled His Word, the Word of the living God. Well, there's much more we could say about that. That judgment that he talk, talks about here is the judgment that all of us will stand before one day. It's referred to in the New Testament as the Bema Seat. Some call it the Bema Seat. It's the judgment of rewards, but you don't go through it without getting on fire. In other words, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it talks about that all of us have the foundation, which is Christ, and the gospel. That's where we all start. But some of us build on that foundation with gold and silver and precious stones and then others build with wood, hay and straw. And whenever you go through the fiery, omniscient judgment of Christ, the Bible says some of us will come out of that judgment yet as through fire. In other words, you're going to be judged. You're going to be evaluated. You're going to be held accountable for what you have done as a teacher. And some of us will be coming out smelling more like smoke because of what we have gone through it is a sobering reality second timothy 4 listen to what paul's last words were to to timothy he says i charge you therefore before god and the lord jesus christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing preach the word In other words, no matter whether you're alive or you are dead, you will be brought before the Lord and give account for what you have done as a servant of God. Therefore, don't preach your opinion, your ideas. Preach the word of the living God. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 12 says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who will give an account. These are tough words. Paul lived that, by the way, in Acts 20, 26. He talks about how he handled himself among the leadership and the church at Ephesus. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not uh, shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, all of it. No matter how offensive it may be or how troubling it may be, how uncomfortable it may be, how difficult it may be, he was willing to share the whole counsel of God so that he could stand before the Lord with a conscience that is clear. So, we see the pressing prudence regarding the tongue. Be careful with your tongue, especially if you become a teacher or even as a believer who's discipling another believer or even sharing the gospel. Make sure you have the gospel right. Be careful what you say, don't mis- misrepresent the word of God to get results. Don't be pragmatic in your approach so much that you water down and sugarcoat the message so that people respond to you in a nice way. Give them the truth in love, with grace, with your tongue. And share the word because you will be accountable for those words. And the second point now tonight, or this morning rather, getting ahead of myself Not only the pressing prudence regarding the tongue, but also the potential perfection of the tongue. Look at verse 2. But we all stumble in many things. I was so thankful for that part of the text. Because, uh, you know, you read the first verse and you think, oh my goodness, it's all over with. But then James himself recognizes, as did all the other apostles, that we do stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. The word all in the text here, for we all, is in the last part of that phrase. It is an emphasis of it. It is also a unique way in which uh, James wrote this word, ha-ampatas, which is a word that is a compound word of the word all with a prefix added to it, which emphasizes that to be a strong form, not just everybody, but everybody in bold print. Everybody underlined with an explanation point after it. That's what James is saying. For we all, we all stumble in many things. And if you don't stumble in word, you're perfect. You're perfect. The word stumble here translated in our text twice in this verse uh, actually refers to the idea of a moral lapse. Uh, it It has that idea even of walking and tripping up that is included in that but it also denotes a failure of your responsibility or a failure of your duty so much though that you are blameworthy for your actions that's the idea of stumble it's present tense again which notes that this is an ongoing problem we all have we all stumble we all have problems with our own failures of sin especially the tongue especially the tongue proverbs 20 verse 9 says who can say I have made my heart clean and I am pure from my sin. Who can say that? Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, For there is not a just man on the earth who does good and does not sin. Also Isaiah 64.6 says, For we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is as filthy rags. We fade as a leaf, and our, our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And then again, Paul's words in Romans 3 There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seek after God. They've turned all aside. They've become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have continually practiced deceit. And the poison of snakes is under their lips. In Romans 7, Paul says these words, I find in a law that evil is continually with me. Galatians five seventeen. here's the battle all of us have, right? The flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things you wish. And so all those verses are really giving credibility to what James says, right? Verse 2, we all stumble in many things. And if anyone does not stumble in the word, he is a perfect man. The word perfect teleos Some actually have the idea that this means mature in this text, that if you are one who does not stumble in word, then you are a mature man, a man who is mature in your faith or mature in your Christian walk. I don't believe that's what he's saying here, although although it's very possible that that's what the word can mean. It does mean that, in fact, in a number of places. The word perfect is used already a couple of times in James. Let me show you how James uses it. James 1.4. He says, let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He uses it two ways there. Same Greek word, but he uses it two different ways. First of all, he says, let patience have its perfect work. What do we mean by that? Mature? No. We mean the absolute perfect work that God does in bringing trials into your life. Then he says that you may be perfect, not sinless, but mature. And grown up as a believer. So he uses it two ways in that verse. In James 117, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. What is that? Mature gift? No, he's talking about absolute total perfection that comes from God the Father in heaven. In James 125, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, again, not just whole, not just mature, not just complete but the idea of absolute perfect law without flaw, the perfect law of liberty. So James already uses the word teleos or perfect a number of different ways. Primarily he uses it for the idea of, in the sense of absolute perfection. And I believe that's what he has in mind here, that he's using it that way. That listen, if you are one who's able to deal with your tongue completely, so much so that you never stumble with a word, then you're a perfect man. You are a perfect man. That goes on to follow in his argument later as he brings it up. In other words, there is no such thing. That's his point. That's his point. Now, why would he say that? Does he mean, well, look, you can't control it, so forget it. Let it fly, right? That's not what he's saying either. He's not using the argument that was brought up to Paul the Apostle in Romans 5 at the end of the chapter whenever he talks about wherever sin is, grace abounds, So then we just should sin all the more, right? That grace may abound. No, what does he say in chapter 6? No, 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 absolutely not. God forbid. We've all died to sin. We're a different person. James is not saying just because he recognizes the problem with our tongue and that the only one who can control it perfectly is a perfect man that we should just give up on the matter. What he is telling us is this. This is a beast to be tamed. This is something to watch out for. This is something you must constantly be sober about. That tongue that is always there with its propensity to lash forth and to bring forth its evil. He says in verse 2, you're a perfect man if you're able to bridle this tongue. And if you're able to do that, you're able to bridle your whole body. In other words, if you can control this one problem, you can control all other sin in your life. That shows the magnitude of the problem, how serious it is, how profound it is. It's something that all of us need to understand the, the word that is translated here, bridal, is made up of a compound Greek word. One of the words is kalanos, and the other is ago, which means to lead. And it actually has the idea of restraining or governing or controlling. Some of the synonyms of that are to hinder or to put in check, to put in check. And so what is behind this is this, is that if you and I are going to be willing to understand taming the tongue, we have to recognize the propensity and the power behind this tongue. Know that the only one who could ever control it perfectly would be the perfect man, which there is not one. But since there isn't one, doesn't mean we give up and that we don't try to. As one author said, the first steps of repentance from sin is the recognition of it. You've got to know the power of the beast before you tame it. You've got to understand the propensity of the sin that is there within the small member that resides behind the two gates of flesh and teeth. And so we need to recognize, first of all, that the tongue has a great propensity to sin and a great power, even though it is small. And by doing that, we begin to understand that we can We can stop this slithering, slippery thing that slides around in our mouth and to control it, control it. We need to understand just how profound the battle is, and that's what James wants to point out to us, and that's what he's going to do as he moves through the rest of the text. So let's move a little further now into the third point, and that is not only the pressing prudence regarding the tongue, the potential perfection of the tongue, but also the pervasive power of the tongue and these are very simple analogies I don't really need to comment on them much and I think sometimes when I comment on things like this I go beyond my knowledge and I might show you just how ignorant I really am but in verse 3 he says indeed we put bits in horses mouths that they may obey us and we turn their whole body now here's a confession I've never ridden a horse okay I don't ever desire to ride a horse Okay, I'm not sure I want to be on the back of anything like that. As a child, I tried to ride a dog one time. We had a St. Bernard in Florida, believe it or not. We had to shave him so he could stay cool. But he loved to run whenever you shaved him. And he'd come barreling around that house like a football player and knock us all on the ground. That's about as close as I've ever got to riding a horse. Now, I know that some of you love horses, and you love to ride horses, and you think it's a wonderful thing, and that's all great, and I, I support you 100% in it. But behind the analogy that we have here in this text is, is that you have a very large beast, right, a very powerful animal. And how do you control him? Strap his legs together, tie them up so he can't walk but a little at a time? No, you control him by a bit in his mouth that lays over his tongue. And you can turn his head one way or the other, thereby turning his entire body to go that direction based upon that small piece of metal in his mouth. That's an amazing analogy, isn't it? Because what James is telling us is that that beast that you have within you, you know, that tongue that is so small yet so powerful, you need to recognize its power and how you can control the sinful tendencies of the human heart by controlling the tongue. He also in verse 4 uses the analogy of the ships. Now you're getting closer to home for me. In the water. He says look also at the ships. Although they are so large. And are driven by fierce winds. They are turned by very small rudders. Wherever the pilot desires. Now the word pilot is really an unfortunate. Translation of that text. Even though really it's made up of three words. The one governing the The direction or determining the direction of the ship is the four words that are used in the original text that are translated here pilot desires you might i know some of you who are naval personnel personnel are thinking why doesn't it say captain well it could say that but the pilot gives more of an idea of what the words are indicating that you're steering it in one direction or another as opposed to a captain of an army or something like that like the new testament would have recognized the word Nevertheless, the point is, you get it, it's very clear that these large ships are governed by a very small rudder. Now, for those of you who are not into boating or shipping, there's a small device usually on the back of a boat called a rudder or a ship. If you have an outboard, you have a motor that turns, it acts as the rudder, and it will turn you right or left or whatever as you want to go, wherever you desire to go. In those days, there were some large ships, not like we have today. I mean, we have some behemoths today. We have some ships that are massive. And uh, the, you know that can carry tons of cargo, and some of the uh, aircraft carriers and warships that we have are massive ships. But in those days, the largest one that we know of that the Apostle Paul would have actually uh, conversed on and traveled on was one that could hold about 276 passengers plus food and other needs. They would have the crew, the soldiers, and the citizens, and sometimes even prisoners. And they were large vessels, no doubt, larger than what the fishermen were used to on their daily uh, trips to go fishing. These were big ships in those days. And the way they governed them and moved them and turned them was by the small rudder on the back of the ship. Usually they were driven by wind and oars. And in this case, what he's simply saying is here you have this large ship and... What turns it is this small piece of wood at the back of the ship called the rudder. And it can take this massive vessel that can hold so many people and turn it wherever the pilot determines. So it is with the tongue, right? It's exactly what he's telling us here in this text. Look at it in verse 5. Even so, the tongue is a little member like the rudder, like the bit in the horse's mouth. Yet it boasts great things. In other words, it may not be much, and you don't see it a whole lot, but it sure is a prideful little arrogant thing, isn't it? It loves to boast. It loves to speak well of itself. It loves to make others look less than itself. All of these things could be attributed to this point that is given to us, and James is telling us, Be careful lest you underestimate the power of the smallest member that can cause so much harm and so much division and so much destruction. It can destroy. It can sin and sin greatly. In fact, the word that is translated here in verse 5, that this tongue boasts great things, in the textus receptus, which is, the Greek text that the King James Version and the New King James is based upon, the word is a compound word. Two of the words that are translated great, boast great things. In the other translation, it's separated. But in the Textus Receptus, if you put the two words together and you get the compound use of it, it has the idea of being proud or talking big. Big talk. You know, the whole problem that all of us have that started the whole mess, right? all the way back to the devil in heaven was pride boasting all of that that comes and spews forth from the tongue just like satan did up in heaven whenever he rebelled he says i will be like the most high his little slithering demonic tongue boasted great things and he was kicked out of heaven And so our tongue does the exact same thing. It is self-centered. Your tongue loves you. And you take care of it, don't you? And it desires to be the most important. And it will do whatever it can to make itself look good. And it will boast great, great things. As one author said, obviously the author here, James, has in mind the natural inclination of the sinner to boast and to be self-centered. But the tongue is the one that issues this forth. It is the one that brings this forth. It brings destruction in its wake. In fact, in James 4.13, if you remember this, we'll get to it soon. In James 4.13, it says this, Come now, you who say with the tongue, here it is, you who say with the tongue, Today or tomorrow we will go to such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? That's arrogance. Arrogance. You just, you think you control everything in your life? You just say this as if you have complete control over all of these things? In verse 14, whereas you do not know what's going to happen tomorrow at all. Yet you say this. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say with your tongue, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this. Or that. Now verse sixteen, but now you boast in your arrogance. There it is, right there. Oh how the tongue wishes to usurp the authority of God in our lives and not to obey, but to rebel and to speak ill and evil of others. So in order for you and I as our as a believer to control the tongue in our lives, we must always, always be ever present and ever-present in our mind to resist the inclination and the temptation to allow the tongue to be loose and to do whatever it desires to do. We should always be careful to speak gracious words. You say, what exactly is that? A gracious word is an unmerited word. You say, well, they don't deserve it. That's exactly what grace means. You don't speak harm. You speak edifying words, encouraging words, gracious words. Those kinds of words that build up rather than tear down. Listen, it's easy to tear down someone. It's difficult to build someone up. It's easy to speak ill of someone and to point out all of their faults, right? But we need to be careful to make sure that we speak edifying words, comforting words, blessing words. Even to those who do us harm and don't encourage us back. They should be words that are given in humility and gratitude and peace and holiness and wisdom as we'll see later on in James 3. These words should come from our heart because we're indwelt by the Spirit of God and we're being controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit and infilled with His words so that these words come out naturally to others. Do you do that? you have any problems with that? I think all of us would be willing to say yes, we do. You know your tongue is that one part of your body that is like a temperature gauge of your spiritual health. Now, before we had all the electronic nonsense, we had the old thermometers where you would lay in bed and they would stick the thermometer under your tongue and you would wait there for your mom to come get it out of there because you couldn't stand it. You put that thermometer under your tongue to determine the temperature of your body, right? If you had a fever or not, to determine just how sick you really are. So it is with the tongue. Your tongue is a spiritual temperature gauge of where you are in your spiritual life. If your tongue has control of you, you're going the wrong direction in your spiritual direction, in your spiritual life. But as a believer, you and I should work hard to control the smallest member of our body that causes so much harm. Let me give you a little hint as to how we do this so that I don't leave you without any help. One of the ways we can keep our tongue in check and restrain our words that we share is by, by allowing other words to infiltrate our heart. That's the words of Christ, the words of God. They fill our minds and they fill our soul and then they are enabling us to control the propensities and the powerful inclinations of evil that want to roll off of our tongues Colossians 3 is a passage I'll close with before we have the Lord's Supper. But Colossians 3 is probably one of the clearest on this. It says this in Colossians 3 16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, seeking, singing uh, with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So for us to control our words, we, ha- we need to have the word of Christ control us. And we fill our minds and our hearts with the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God. We share that with one another in wisdom and teaching and admonishing through songs, through psalms and hymns, and we always express thanksgiving in our hearts to God with our words, with our tongue, giving thanks to Him. And in whatever we do, in word spoken, or indeed done, we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your focus first. Amen. We'll pick up on the topic of the tongue next Lord's Day. Now, what I'd like to do.